All right, our last speaker for this morning is uh, James Rostovan from McMaster University. Thank you very much. It's very strange being an anchor person in a meeting like this, but uh, thank you, the devoted, for being here. Um, and I did try to get this meeting moved to the outside so we can enjoy the weather, but it didn't work. One interest I've developed in recent years is the idea of relationships within medical practice and within what I call the medical encounter. And what I'd like to present to you today are some of my thoughts and analysis on how, as a Christian, uh, I think we can counter some uh, abuses of the sense and term covenant in medical practice uh, toward uh, its original intent, uh, which, in my view as a Christian, would be a, a biblical one. In Greek mythology, which is the basis of Greek religion in the Hippocratic tradition, some relationships were considered what some would now characterize as covenantal. Yet they were rife with conflict between gods, demigods, and humans. The demigod Asclepios evolved over 500 years to become the god of medicine, who had compassion to heal the sick among the poor. Many Greek physicians, including Hippocrates, claimed descent from this hero physician, and Galen referred to Asclepius as his ancestral god. Indeed, in swearing by Apollo, who was the father of Asclepius, Asclepius himself and his daughters, Hygenia and Panachaea, at the beginning of the Hippocratic Oath, physicians pledge that they will do no harm, but will actively comfort and heal. While taking and adhering to the oath is at best problematic for Christians for various reasons, we can learn from its primary purpose a declaration of need for ethical reform and to establish standards of professional excellence. Increasingly, the oath itself alludes to a covenantal relationship, surprisingly to some, not that between the physician and the patient, but rather between the novice physician, his mentor, and the mentor's family. This relationship was based on a student's promissory reciprocation for receiving the gift of knowledge of the medical art. As such, this relationship is reminiscent of a covenantal relationship if, at its core, it required the trust that a promise will be fulfilled, that supererogatory efforts were expected if needed, that is heroism, and the relationship was lifelong. So much so did Asclepius's qualities inspire the pagan world that some early church leaders compared Asclepius with Christ, the Savior, the Healer, and the advocate for the poor. But versions of the life and death of Asclepius varied. For example, his death was attributable by some to greed for accepting gold for his services, but by others to his benevolent actions, which were a perceived threat to the power of the full gods, not demigods. This contrasts sharply with the Christian story of a god who superhumanly and graciously offered to establish a covenant with the promise of salvation through the sacrifice and resurrection of his son, despite the repeated disobedience and failure of humankind to keep that covenant. Against this background of contrasting covenantal relationships in Greek and Christian traditions, I would like to show why a Christian covenantal model of medical relationships can best provide the full normative meaning of those relationships. A recently published statement entitled The Physician-Patient Covenant, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, claims that a covenant is at the center of medicine and is a moral enterprise grounded in trust. At least one of its signatories believes that in this covenant, 
the physician has a primary fiduciary or trust-based responsibility to patients, the history of which can be traced to that mythical God-man Asclepius. The statement expresses a shared concern that today's physicians are allowing materialistic self-interest, profit, and commercial interests to erode what they see as a primary obligation to serve the good of those who seek their help and expect mutual trust. Yet the basis and justification for that trust is not given, while belief in a common goodwill is implied. There is no appeal to a transcendent ideal or power. While the primacy of patient obligation is referenced against competing interests in profit-making ventures, particularly in managed care schemes, the statement also does not address the conflict of obligations in one's family, community, and other social groups. Several contemporary bioethicists have tried to link covenant concepts with other aspects of medicine. The Canadian physician and bioethicist Jeff Nisker has written that a covenantal model captures the moral nature of medicine through the possession of certain inherent qualities, such as trust, generosity, commitment, empathy, and creativity, qualities not considered in a contractual type of model. In a nursing context, Susan Coffey agrees that evidence supports the prescriptive premise that a covenantal model incorporates well the nature and reality of the patient-nurse relationship. Unlike others who have focused primarily on the caregiver part of that relationship, Coffey devotes at least equal time in her analysis to the patient and her role in that relationship. From this, it can be seen that the concept of covenant has been brought forward as both a prescriptive and descriptive one for various reasons. Some have used it as a corrective for perceived misconceptions that either inadequately characterize relationships within medicine or that distort relationships in some way. However, articulations of contemporary models of covenantal relations as working frameworks for expressing or playing out the relationships are usually conspicuous by their lack of any sufficient grounding of a transcendental nature. Rather, justification is based on mythical beliefs of Greek traditions. Furthermore, most current applications focus on the distribution of power and influence on the caregiver side of the relationship. The caregiver is exhorted to, play better to display better dispositions, virtues, and dialogue, to resist paternalism, and to relinqu relinquish the inherent position of power over the patient or redirect it for the good of the most vulnerable partner in the relationship. Therefore, from a Christian perspective, two important aspects of a truly covenantal model are often ignored by those who evoke such a model in contemporary medical contexts. First, any valid relational covenant between humans can only be properly and completely fulfilled if recognized as necessarily dependent on a more primary superhuman relationship. And secondly, any ethical theory developed around covenantal models of medical relationships must account for the essential elements for ethical deliberation, discernment, and decision-making. These include a proper disposition, the development of the character of the moral agents, and biblical values grounded in the covenant between God and humankind from which human actions are carried out to fulfill covenantal commitments. From a Reformed Christian perspective, Scripture instructs us how we should relate to others as a reflection of the gracious gift of covenant that God established with humankind. As theologian Louis Burkhoff puts it, from the beginning God condescended to come down to the creatures who bore his image 
and by positive enactment graciously established a covenant relationship. The relationship between God and humans is thus covenantally qualified and administered in different ways throughout redemptive history. As John Steck has summarized, in the Reformed tradition, covenant became a theological concept utilized to construe the nature of the God-human relationship and was necessitated by the ontic distance between creator and creature. Covenant is a theme which runs throughout redemptive history, but its importance varies within different Christian traditions. It is within the Reformed traditions that the idea of covenant became a central theme in a biblically derived theology. Yet even during the Reformation period, unanimity among the leading reformers was elusive regarding a common view of covenant within theological alternatives to that of the Roman Catholic Church. Indeed, within post-Reformation traditions, there remain different interpretations of position of covenant, the position of covenant within the theologies of the tradition founders. Most reform leaders during the Reformation and the immediate post-Reformation period appeared to adhere to a post-Lapsarian covenant of grace necessitated by sin. This was generally initiated in the Noetic and Abrahamic covenants, the first of a series of covenants through which God attempted to maintain a relationship of trust with a chosen remnant after sin entered the world and which matured in the new covenant in Christ. However, later followers and interpreters of these early leaders have suggested that some, including John Calvin, may have considered the pre-fall relationship with God and Adam also covenantal. Peter Lilliback has argued convincingly, I think, that God's covenant is unconditional from God's perspective, but conditional from humans' perspective. That is, God dispatches a purely gracious arrangement which he will not break, but from the individual human, obedience is a necessary response without which God's gracious covenant could be nullified in divine judgment. According to Lilliback, Calvin saw all humans accepted into a common covenant or adoption which they could break through disobedience. That general or common covenant forms a covenant community for all humankind. Within that community are those who, by special election, will remain bound to God, though they may stumble and must be constantly on guard against disobedience. The non-elect, by contrast, will break the common covenant. This idea of a prelapsarian covenant has come to be known as the covenant of works. Calvin alludes to a conditionality in the earliest relationship with God and Adam. Life for Adam and Eve was conditional on a continuing obedience to God, and such conditionality suggests a covenantal relationship. Furthermore, says Lilybeck, Calvin sees the prohibition to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a test of obedience at a time when humankind had not yet been perfected. Adam needed to grow in wisdom through obedience to God. Lilybeck argues further that for Calvin, the tree of life was a sacrament, a pledge of life, a seal which then implies a covenant promise. And I quote, one is, when he, one is when he gave Adam and Eve the tree of life as a guarantee of immortality. Another, when he set the rainbow for Noah and his descendants as a token that he would not destroy the earth with a flood. These Adam and Noah regarded as sacraments because they had a mark engraved upon them by God's word so that they were proofs and seals of his covenants. Humankind's relationship with God determines its relationship within humankind. 
Toward those who depend on them, humans should act with gracious authority as God does toward them while acting in gratitude and obedience to those in authority over them as they do to God. Interestingly, in bioethics, a prelapsarian concept of covenant may be helpful in providing a normative ethical grounding for the so-called four principles, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Appealed to extensively among bioethicists for addressing contemporary bioethical problems, principalism, as it is called, has been rightly criticized for lacking a transcendental basis that a Christian covenantal ethical theory could provide. While time does not permit a fuller discussion of the problem at this level, application of a biblically-based covenantal model to medical relationships may be seen as a specific application of such an ethical theory. Christian bioethicists have articulated quite variable Christian views of covenant in this context. Paul Ramsey, for example, tried to distill the covenant concept into what he called covenant fidelity, expressed as Christian neighborly love with no requirement for reciprocation. He distinguishes this idea of a covenant relationship from a more sec- distinguishes it from a more secular idea of universal brotherhood or that of a cosmopolitan spirit. He advocates for a primacy of moral judgments by patients and those who support them. Robert Veach, another Christian bioethicist and a firm believer in autonomous patient choice, proposes inventing a moral framework through a social contract by irrationally pursuing enlightened self-interest. For Veach, a covenant is a special contract based on mutual loyalty and trust. He substitutes covenant language with a Hobbesian interpretation of binding relationships emphasizing public and legal aspects. By contrast, Roman Catholics Edmund Pellegrino and David Thomasma favor a covenant of trust embodied in an ethic of virtue in which the physician pledges fidelity in a binding promise to help. From a Reformed perspective, physician Kenneth Vaux adds a community dimension by advocating an ethics of koinonia, whereby covenanting communities of faith resist societal models of autonomous, self-ruling, and self-serving selves in favor of committed allegiance to God alone, and in his spirit of gracious acceptance and forgiveness who exist primarily for each other rather than ourselves. Thomas F. William F. May has perhaps most fully articulated covenantal relational types in the medical context. For May, covenantal relations go beyond a material framework to encompass a different spirit that is internal, going beyond the temporal limitations of a contract and thus preventing the expedient neglect of obligations and promises. Covenants have a gratuitous growing edge, he says, cutting deeper into personal identity and promoting fundamental change in a person's being in the relation-building process. For patient-caregiver relationships, this enables the caregiver to transformationally go beyond expressed wants and become more attractive to patients' deeper needs. Furthermore, it offsets the inherent power inequality in the relationship, allowing the more powerful caregiver to accept more responsibility for the more vulnerable partner and reflecting back on God's condescension for the sake of covenant. In medical practice today, the paternalistic model of medical care has been largely replaced by alternatives which take more into account patients' values and preferences and empower patients with greater decision-making responsibility. 
The deliberative model proposed by Emmanuel Ezekiel at the National Institutes of Health, wherein the patient sees the physician as a friend and teacher who leads the patient toward moral self-development, has become very popular. A Christian covenantal model would go further, providing a promissory understanding while going beyond the role of teacher and friend to one of caregiver, empathetic, empathetic listener, and a guide to keep the person on a path toward recovery or coping. The moral self-development includes moral sharing and persuasion. Another important relationship, much less explored by bioethicists, is that of the patient and supporting individuals. When I see a patient in the clinic for the first time, I strongly encourage patients to bring a trusted other, preferably the same person each time. This reduces the patient's sense of vulnerability, provides another set of ears and interpretive mind that will provide the patient will help the patient comprehend and incorporate what I say so that the patient ultimately decides what course to take. The relationship with which an other may be best developed through a covenantal model. That person or persons will usually have an established relationship with the person based on trust at the onset of the illness. Such a patient will have to offer time and interpretive expertise over and above other obligations or duties owed to others. Such, a such as rearranging a schedule of family activities or taking off work. In his explorations of intergenerational relations in the context of illness of elderly family members, Drew Christensen considers filial responsibility toward the elderly as a basic defense of the dignity of the elderly against the vulnerabilities created by failing health and reduced self-reliance. In our society, this can create a tension between a societal-bred predilection toward autonomous freedom with its independence from others and a perceived risk to revert to paternalism with increasing dependence of elderly family members. In response, Christensen rightly points out that caregiving always takes on a sacrificial character. In a family context, caregiving should normatively flow from an established covenantal relationship of promise and trust that lasts a lifetime. With illness comes but an aspect or phase of that relationship rather than the de novo creation of a new relationship as often occurs between patient and professional caregivers. Its core of promise, its inherent virtuous character in the domestic sphere, and its lifetime commitment qualify the relationship as covenantal even more than that of the professional caregivers. In a recent study of women with breast cancer, 90% of subjects named a family member as their primary support, health care proxy, and or emergency contact person. While over 80% named a first degree relative to all three roles, the same person filled those roles in only 50% of the time. Pre-existing close family bonds formed the core of trust and comfort for the large majority of these patients. Yet some members were perceived as better suited to provide specific manifestations of that support within the family. For those without families or who rely primarily on friends or neighbors, the support relationship can take on a more tentative character, depending on whether the relationship has functionally developed to replace lost or never acquired family relations. However, the strengths of the bond of fidelity and sacrificial potential may be as strong or stronger than any familial relationship. William May advocates that whoever assumes a caregiver role, particularly for the dying, needs what he calls the covenantal virtue of courage, 
He describes courage in this context as a matter of keeping one's dislikes and fears under bridle for the sake of the good. It is a firmness of soul in the face of adversity. Thomas Aquinas distinguished an active and passive courage. The former connotes attack while the latter manifests as endurance. As deliverers of care, professional caregivers tend to advocate the former, sometimes characterized in their pugilistic metaphors of fighting the disease with active therapy, while supporting others, with a big O, the supporters, may bring forward endurance, and as such would express the covenantal character of their role more in the tradition of Job's friends. A pioneer of our contemporary care of the dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, urged that professional caregivers develop a kind of intimacy in their relationships with the dying, an almost mythical merging of the two. William May disagrees, acknowledging a distancing that occurs over time as health deteriorates, reflection about death intensifies, and the individual draws upon those with whom they are most closely, have most closely shared their life experiences, that is, the faithful others or supporters. But even such a covenantal faithfulness is marked by strangeness. The dying loved one is on a different path, or rather, is hurrying faster down the same path into revealed but strange territory. If the, like the friends of Job, sometimes the virtue of silent perseverance, just being there, is the passive courage that preserves the covenantal bond despite the strangeness. As scripture teaches, the spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. Richard Zayner notes that the spatial context may also give a distinctive character to the patient-supporter relationship. A hospital room, for example, becomes the domain of the vulnerable. During a vigil of severe illness where death may be not far ahead, nursing staff come and go in shifts, Physicians may come in for daily visits lasting several minutes, but the truly covenanting ones often stay throughout the day and into the evening. Particularly when members of the same family take turns, there is a covenantal continuity of support. Indeed, the focus shifts so that the vulnerable can become the dominant one. Entry into the room feels intrusive. Those in a supportive role also increase their influence currying information and express needs to caregivers in other parts of the ward or even outside of the hospital. The supporter-patient relationship is unique and special in the medical encounter. In many ways, it is the most stressful, the most risky, the most self-sacrificing, indeed, perhaps the most covenanting of all medical relationships. While most often an, extens an extension of an established covenantal relationship of family relations and those of true friends and companions, it can test that covenant in its demands for courage and fortitude. Similarly, the larger supporting community should seek its covenanting role, particularly when it professes Christ and, exhibits and exists to forward the covenantal joys and expectations of the God-believer relationship among believers in times of health and in times of distress. As believers, we need to work hard in our own communities to muster the courage and fortitude to be covenantal helpers to our ailing body members. In many of our faith communities, we pledge at infant baptism to help raise the child in faith. Should we perhaps develop a similar pledge to provide covenantal support for each other in times of illness?
Thank you. Are there any questions at this time? Okay, sorry. This is a new field for me, Jim, so this question might be out of turn, but is there simply uh, an increasing distaste with a sort of contractual uh, model or, or, or metaphor uh, between patient and, and, and health provider that people are responding to? Uh, is it be simply because of the impersonal elements or of the fact that people are realizing uh, we have to get more people involved to provide even the doctors are becoming aware of that. Uh, yes, I think it's at two levels, though. Um, one is at the, at the level of, of the model, which continues to try to resist paternalistic approaches, where you've got this power domination situation. Uh, as soon as you have that, then you start developing a need for a contractual relationship because of that power struggle. And then there's the, the issue of complexity, technology, um, as we, as we raised in the gender symposium, an increased number of caregivers. Um, you, you become mechanical, you become more technical, partly because of fear, because you're afraid you're gonna get sued if you miss something. Um, and, and this is to try to get back to a dimension that has always been there. Um, what I'm trying to do is um, refocus that um, necessary revisit of the relationships but moving away from the Greek model, which is, I mean, secular medicine can only go back to the Greek model and say, we have this tradition, we know it's myth, but it's the tradition. So what I'm trying to do is revive the covenantal concept in the, in, in the biblical sense. Also, as I alluded to briefly, um, I'm particularly interested in, in the, principle, the principles, principalism, because as, as a, a person who's been in bioethics for a few years now, whether it's clinical bioethics or whether it's teaching or whatever, that is the predominant secular framework through which people appeal in making their deliberations, not so much in making their decisions, because once you start making your decisions, things start falling apart because you have a common language and they claim it's because there's a common morality, but in fact there is not a common morality. And you don't have those basic presuppositional transcendental basis upon which you make those decisions, and it becomes a problem. I think, um, and that was part of my challenge, as we discussed with, um, with Doug's talk. And I empathize with his dilemma, because I have the same dilemma. When you're in the public forum, how do you get that across as a Christian, and yet not fall into a common morality type of approach? I'm a consultant, I mean, I've been trained as a consultant in medicine. If I don't give my opinion, they're not gonna call me again. And yet when you consult as a medical bioethicist or a clinical bioethicist, the, the model has become you don't give an opinion. You give various opinions saying, well, you said this, therefore I think maybe you should go there. But you guys said this, and, there, and it drives me nuts, quite honestly. Um, but that's an, inter an interesting uh, evolution in medicine. Is there any other questions? not, that uh, ends our session today. The uh, other speaker was jury duty, I believe. So he's uh, making decisions on
somebody else's life right now, hopefully ethically. Um, so thank you again for coming.